0: Daniel, I understand that you are a huge David Fincher fan. That's correct. Okay. So we have a quote here from David Fincher to start our interview. And um, if this is from Brainy Quote, so hopefully it's correct. It says this. um, Some people go to the movies to be reminded that everything is okay. I don't make those kind of movies. (laughs) Any thoughts on this quote as it relates to your work?
1: I would agree with that, but I think that comes from... That goes much further back than that, that good drama to me is about conflict. So it has to be about stakes. So it very quickly tends to be about life and death kind of a thing. You know, The feel-good movies are probably dealing with that a little bit less and they find other things that they're giving the audience, humor and kind of that wholesomeness feeling. I like the stakes thing a lot and I think what Fincher does really well, what very few people do is that you don't know whether it's going to end well or badly. Like He has made movies that have done either. So if I go and see a Fincher movie today I genuinely don't know if the protagonist is going to be okay at the end of the movie. And that is something that I would love to have in my own movies obviously because that is the ultimate suspense to do that to an audience. Whereas I think with most filmmakers, 99% of filmmakers you probably know that the protagonist is going to be okay in the end. And then the other person, you know that it's going to be a dark ending, a horror ending, a kind of, you know, and Fincher has that great balance. So that is definitely something to aspire to, I think.
0: Well, they say that most of these blockbuster films are made for the middle states, and they're made by people on either coast, and I'm butchering that quote. Uh But do you think that most people who aren't in the arts, the people that maybe just want uh, a neat ending, always feel that way? I, I know I would asked someone who said they had a condo in Park City and I said, oh great, you get to go to Sundance, you don't have to worry. He goes, I hate those movies. Oh. I said, you do? How could you hate He goes, I want to have a nice clear ending, I want to be happy, I want to be u- uplifted in the end.
1: Ok. I, I don't feel that way but… I think with me it depends on the day. There are days where I very much feel that way and I am looking at a synopsis for a movie and it sounds… Intelligent and thought-provoking, and I'd rather go to the dentist than watch that movie on that day because it's just you know too deep and will involve uh, me too much. And some some days I want that kind of feel-good movie, and then there are other days. My favorite movie this year is *The Lobster*. Have you seen *The, the I Lobster*? No. Incredible, and it's one of those movies where from moment to moment you have no idea what's going to be next, but every single one of them is uncomfortable. And but. Y- y- You're so engaged in what's going on because it's a story that you have never lived through before. Whereas 99% of other stories you've lived through before with different actors, with slightly different storylines, but you kind of are in familiar waters. And I think if a movie can put you in unfamiliar waters, that in itself is such an achievement that it doesn't matter whether it's a good ending or a bad ending or whatever the experience that you're being given for your ten dollars. I think it's is worth every penny.
0: Is it because, and this sounds so trite, but it, it's about, it, it reminds us of life, but it's not our life. We're watching someone else go through the fact that most human lives, that's our day. We're never sure from moment to moment. Right. Is this going to turn out well? Is the car in front of us going to cut us off? Is this person actually not a friend? You know, yeah. but that's life. But then we get to watch someone else go through it
1: and we get to take something away from it. I think what we really want to do is that we see ourselves reflected in that struggle somehow and leave the theater with some insight that we didn't have before. And I don't know if it's necessarily important that that protagonist who was the vehicle for us to have that insight leads a happy life after the movie or doesn't lead a happy life after the movie as long as I feel it was a rich experience that makes me a slightly different person walking out than I was walking in. But it's interesting that you're saying that about life because I always have that argument with genres because life isn't one genre, right? Life is funny and life is scary and life is sexy and life is bum bum all those things. And yet movies for some reason and marketing presses us into this one genre. We have to decide the worst thing that can happen to us when we develop stuff is that we are in between genres, that it's unclear whether it's a thriller, or a drama, like every marketing person will immediately tell you that that is poison and you have to go either clearly the one way or the other way. And even if you don't and you deliver a movie that is in between genres, they will make sure to make it look like a specific genre. They will decide in marketing, the marketing department will say this is a thriller and will just take the moments that look like a thriller and put them together. And I think that's when you get an unhappy audience because they were coming in with one mindset. And then they were delivered something else. But I always love movies that stay within their genre, deliver that promise, but also give you sparkles of that real life that actually jumps genres.
0: Well, it reminds me of uh, David Foster Wallace. He mm-hmm. wrote the book Infinite Jest, and he did an interview, and he said he wrote uh, an article on going on a cruise, which he said was the most excruciatingly painful experience for him because they quote, forced you to have fun right. and then they would check in. Are we having fun oh, yet? Yes, and yes. we're going to do all these fun things on this itinerary for the day. Does it almost feel like that with certain films where they're forcing
1: you… I think that is scary about the comedy when they always say that comedies are harder to make than anything else which I believe because it's all about timing and about precision and all that and making it look easy and effortless. But the other thing is that the audience knows at every moment what you're going for. They know. In every moment you're trying to make them laugh and have them have a good time, which in a drama or in a thriller I don't have to be, I don't have to lay my cards on the table that much and say, and now I'm going to try to make you laugh. Let's see if this works. And every failure is blowing up right in your face. That's not the case. Maybe with a thriller a little bit because they know you're trying to create suspense, but it's more an overall, over the entire narrative kind of moment uh, 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 of effort. Rather than a moment-by-moment moment effort, whereas in a comedy, you know when a joke doesn't land, you know, and it's painful. And I'm glad that I'm not making comedies, and I don't have to subject myself to that kind of inspection.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of the "Have a nice day" T-shirt. So for a while, that was really big, in like maybe the late '70s, '80s, and then there was this backlash. Don't tell me what kind of day to have. Right. Nice. <laughs> exactly.
1: Exactly. And that's what you want from your movies, or at least you want movies. I think that's the whole manipulation. Discussion. I do think that storytelling is inherently manipulative. Of course you want the audience to have a certain experience, and you're trying as a storyteller to, to get as much of a grip on the audience to steer them through the experience that you want them to have. But if they realize that you're doing that, I think there is a resistance to it. And they are gonna put on the t-shirt, don't tell me what kind of data, don't tell me how to feel, you know. And the worst thing that can happen, I forget what I just saw that did that is where the protagonist is always half a step ahead of the audience emotionally. Like that person is already crying because something sad is happening, but as an audience, I haven't caught up yet, so I don't get to actually experience the sadness. I only get to experience that protagonist's reaction to the sadness, and I immediately see my wall going up and go like, "Aha! the movie wants me to feel sad. Screw you, you know, I'm not gonna feel sad. And I think that's another timing thing that goes for every genre, that you have to time the experiences and the reactions of the people in the story to what you think will be the rhythm of the audience, which is really hard to predict, I think. And that's why editing, when, when people always say the film's made in editing, I think that's definitely true for the rhythm of it all, because you have to anticipate when the audience will arrive at what point and when you can shoot the next particle of information or emotion And if you get that wrong, then it's like a dance rhythm that is slightly off, you know. And I think that's the difference between a good editor and a bad editor. And then you do test screenings and then you learn that the audience dances to a completely different beat than you thought they would. And then you recut the whole thing until you are kind of in step with your audience, I think.
0: Well, in between takes, I think you mentioned a book about editing that was interesting. In the, in
1: the Blink of an Eye, it's one of the required reading books at the American Film Institute, and it's written by Walter Murch, who's a like, very famous uh, editor. And he has this theory that we don't blink randomly, but we kind of blink when we digest a chunk of information in our head, you know, and that you should pay attention to your blinking rhythm when you are watching your edit and see if that kind of goes along with the the exclamation marks and the commas and all that in your movie and that you can, you can watch an audience watch your movie and look at their blinking rhythm and you know whether your story is well told or not depending on whether that syncs up with your story or not. I think that's even a theory in dating that people whose blinking doesn't sync up, that they don't match because their brains work differently and process differently. And I think maybe you know that from your own life, if you were telling a story to someone and that person blinks in the wrong moment, subconsciously you know that that person is not really listening to your story, and you know that something's off, you know, even if you can't put your finger on it. And I think Walter Murch in that book kind of really focuses in on that and explains that.
0: Right. I mean, just a side note, I wear contacts, so sometimes I will I blink, will blink. To because they're dry. But other than that, that definitely makes sense, like if you see someone maybe look up and I know there's different theories on where someone looks when they're telling you something right. as to whether that's true or not. But have you watched people watch a cut of your film and been conscious of their eyes? Well, all their, the time. Oh. All uh, the time, yeah.
1: Because I can't for some reason I can't not watch my own movie if it's a screening that I'll do q and A Q&A after. I can't because other people just go get a drink and come back for the Q and A and do the Q and I always have the feeling I have to watch the movie with that audience to get a feeling for their experience of it so that I know we are talking about the same movie because every audience, weirdly I haven't figured out why, has a different experience watching the exact same movie and you can tell that they are laughing at different moments, you can tell that they are in suspense in different moments. I don't know why that is. There is some hive group dynamic going on. <laughs> so uh-huh. to me it is really interesting to to see a movie with that audience and then I am watching their reactions a lot in the dark, you know, like a creep without them knowing. <laughs> and, and sometimes I see them blink at the wrong moments and I am like, oh man, I wish I had known that earlier. I am losing them in that and that moment or that and that moment. It is the same as if there is a joke in there and the audience does not laugh and you go like, did the joke not work or did you lose them somewhere along the line completely? so that they didn't even realize that there was a joke you know so it's it's a terrifying experience watching your movie with an audience for sure but the blinking the blinking helps
0: well, i think it depends too what type of an audience if you're watching it with people who are within the industry let's say they're journalists they see 3 movies a week i think maybe there's a desensitization a little bit whereas if you watched with People that they work nine to five jobs and then that's their entertainment for the Friday night. They're going to be giddy and having fun if it's a comedy yeah. or if they want to be scared. They're going to be maybe more high, you know, because sure. they want to feel something.
1: Sure. But of course, ideally, the, the, the hope would be that you can penetrate that cynicism, that you've created a story that is interesting enough and surprising enough and strong enough emotionally that even the guy that watches three movies a day because it's his job and he kind of hates having to watch another one, if you can get that guy to forget that that's his job for an hour and a half, you know, and and send him on the journey that he didn't even want to go onto, I think then you have a strong movie. I don't know if I've made that movie yet, but I I know that that's kind of the goal, that it's not audience dependent, but it's so strong narratively that it would grab anyone, that you would have to be deaf, dumb and blind to not be affected by it.
0: Right. I, well, and I've sat next to journalists who have literally jumped out of their chair at certain points so that n- not to say and I, that was my bad that they're disaffected right. but uh, I think in some cases we've just seen so much that you know it, it is they hard. can predict
1: the narrative and they right. can predict the turns and all that kind of stuff
0: right but with this book uh, do you remember reading it do yeah. you remember th- and what besides the the rhythm, I guess that, to me that's just fascinating. Now I'm going to be very conscious of that, even in just daily life.
1: But then you're screwed because I really? was the same. After reading <laughs> that book, I was. Oh, now I'm going to have to pay attention when to blink, and suddenly your blinking rhythm isn't natural anymore, and you have lost already. So you got to get that out of your head again as quickly as possible, and then that's whip it true. out when you're editing your movie.
0: That's true. Yeah, it's that's where sometimes ignorance I- ignorance is bliss. Because if you if you know too much about like micro expressions and things right. like that, then you're kind of like. Hmm, yeah, they're not being sincere but um, when you uh, went to AFI, uh, that was required reading and do you remember how different it was for you after you finished the book? How how you approached being in the editing room and watching even other students see a rough cut
1: of your films? I think it just blends and you're bombarded with so much stuff because there were 50 books on that required reading list so there's all this stuff that I think you don't, you don't concentrate on one particular thing you've learned and then you apply it right there. But it's this, this library of vague stuff that will kind of rear its head. The details will rear their heads hopefully when they are required and some of the time you don't even know it but you have a feeling for, oh, I remember something about that. And I think with that it was like that. I can't remember specifically sitting in the editing room and going like, let me look at my editor and count how often she blinks <laughs> to see that we're on the same page and we're making the same movie. You know, it's just something you kind of vaguely remember, I think.
0: And I think who you watch a movie to in a theater with plays a big role because I remember we watched a film and the only other person in the f- theater and it was at night, was a celebrity and I won't say who it was, but they were there to support the filmmaker and that person was laughing right. and I found myself laughing and then I'm like, wait a minute, am I just trying to like join in with this person? Right. Is that the reason I'm laughing? But it was a great experience and it was surreal being in this huge theater with the one famous person watching this film.
1: Was it Quentin Tarantino? It was
0: not. But, I can say that. Because I have
1: seen him laugh <laughs> through a movie. Of mine, actually. Oh, really? That wasn't supposed to be funny. Oh, no. But he had such a good time. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but he was laughing from the first to the last minute. And I was like, what does that mean? And you could tell that the rest of the audience was confused because it, he has a very succinct laugh. You can tell it's Tarantino. Right. You know. So if he thinks it's funny, then they probably were wondering, should I think it's funny? And there was kind of this weird energy throughout the movie. It was really interesting how... That probably has to do with that hype dynamic again, with the group dynamic that everyone… there is the desire to be on the same page with your fellow human beings kind of a thing. And I think that's why an audience, everyone in an audience is kind of trying to have the same experience and not be too far off from the tribe kind of a thing. And that's maybe why comedies work so much better with a big audience rather than with a small audience because there's less confusion. It's like, oh, everyone else is having fun. So I should have fun too and then there is a, a subconscious kind of tendency towards that.
0: And you never got a, a, an answer as to why certain parts mm. were funny? Mm.
1: To to the Tarantino thing? Right. I Interesting. I talked about to him afterwards and he, you know how he talks, like yeah. all this stuff. But I don't think I got a word in to ask what he thought was funny, no.
0: Hmm. I know sometimes if we go to a theater to watch a movie and it's usually a mainstream film that's more, again, sort of a bedroom community and these aren't people in the industry. And what I'll do is I'll clap at the end to see how many people clap. Because usually within, when you go to a Hollywood film sure. or, or something around this area, people are all in the industry or they know someone and they realize the hard work that the people behind the scenes put in, they'll clap. And I'm surprised and sometimes David teases me how many people don't clap. Right. And they just get out of their chairs, grown, and they were like, "Okay, where do we go get cake and coffee after this?" Right. And and I just find that
1: interesting because d- it's so dependent on the area. I have that with flights. You know how sometimes people clap after <laughs> yes. the plane lands. Yes. We made it. We yeah, we made it. <laughs> and, uh, when I first heard that, maybe that's an American thing because I, I I think I was thirty-five years old when I first sat on a plane where people were clapping, and I was like. What did people expect? Are we celebrating this outcome? You know and it's kind of the same with I think with a movie that you Expect the filmmakers that have had a budget of millions of dollars And the audience has just each paid their good money to see that story that they take it as a given that they are being delivered a good time over those two hours and that they feel like they shouldn't have to celebrate that they weren't screwed over and robbed of their money, you know so i can I can understand the mindset of of not clapping after a movie, and I actually have that when the movie was really good, I can't clap or worse, even talk to people afterwards. like if you're really affected by something, it goes so far you're in a different place you're not clapping like if you're clapping, the movie hasn't hundred percent gotten you. Maybe if it's a comedy, that's a different thing. but if it's a Lars von Trier breaking the waves afterwards, if that got you, you would not clap, you know? Because clapping means you are aware, exactly what you were saying, aware of the work that has been done, right? But if the work has been done brilliantly, you're not even aware of the work that has been done. You are just flattened by the story and by the characters that you just experienced. You don't think about directors, writers, cinematographers, stuntmen, all the stuff behind the scenes because you're so impressed by the narrative that you just experienced. I didn't know I felt that way about clapping until we just talked about it. But that's maybe why I can understand that people don't clap. I don't know if for one of my own movies I would rather have people clap or not clap. I know that my first movie was this fake documentary about suicide. No one ever clapped after that movie and I would have been… I would have known that I had failed if they had clapped after that movie. You know? Whereas with the other movies where it was more of an upbeat ending, or at least not that dark, it probably would have been okay for people to clap, which they didn't there either. Maybe I'm just making bad movies. I don't know what it is. I don't experience the clap outside of festival audiences. You know, f- I think at festivals, because people assume that some of the filmmakers are there, there's the polite kind of clap. But I don't think I've ever experienced it that an audience was clapping after one of my movies. That'd be
0: an interesting uh, uh, sort of survey for, for artists that, that make films. Would you be offended if someone clapped after your movie, or would you take it as a compliment? Depends on the movie. Right? Mm-hmm. It depends
1: on the state you want to put people into. Going back to Fincher, uh, at the end of Seven, w- whether people are clapping or not clapping, and whether you want that or not, probably depends on the story that you were just telling and the emotion that you were hoping to put the audience into. Like Fincher, just because we had that example earlier, for Seven, you know, you want the audience to be so distressed and destroyed that he probably wouldn't want anyone clapping at the end of the movie. I think he would have known in a test screening that something is wrong with this movie, whereas there are probably other movies, you know, that are more upbeat and have a different energy.
0: True. And I am thinking back to the ones that I have clapped at recently, and they were not uh, sort of these m- melancholy endings. Right. So yeah, that, that does make sense. Well, it's 2016, August 2016, summer day in LA. We, I don't know why I felt the needed to say that, but we, were, we met with you the first time in 2012. right? And uh, that was about four years ago. So since that time, a lot has happened in your life. You've, you've been a part of projects, uh, different things. Have you become more idealistic about filmmaking, less so, more realistic about what is needed to work in Hollywood? Have oh, you had any kind a of. Great
1: question. Have you talked to people that get more idealistic as their career goes <laughs> on? That, I, I want to talk to those people. Um, I've become, it's, it's an interesting question because after we last met, I think I was just in preparation for a movie. I think I was just about to shoot 13 Sins, which is my last feature film. I haven't made a feature film since then. And it's interesting you're asking whether I got more idealistic or or less. I think it's a mixture of both because I'm very proud of Thirteen Cents, um, but it never went anywhere. It made nine thousand dollars at the box office, and it came after Last Exorcism, which was this. You can discuss whether that's a better film or a worse film or whatever. But box office wise, it was a seventy million dollar success, going to a nine thousand dollar complete failure at the box office, right? which I would claim I have nothing to do with either. Not with that success and not with that failure, because it's marketing and how much money is being pumped into stuff. Last Exorcism had a marketing budget of $24 million, so it's easier, of course, to get people to see it and to make that kind of money. Thirteen cents didn't have a single dollar of marketing budget, and that depended on pointing fingers but it depends on who buys your movie of course and in that in that case the company that bought the movie just before 13 Cents was going to be released had a huge flop with a movie that they had big hopes for and had done a big marketing campaign for and they were just out of money they did not have the capacity of getting 13 Cents released theatrically you know so suddenly you are a VOD movie which is not a problem but it is a difference of course in if you see the chart of your career, the way it's perceived, you're you're going from, you know, the worldwide theatrical movie to the VOD movie in America, which means that nowhere else in the world it's gonna go theatrical. So suddenly you have a movie that is you know basically disappearing, which has nothing to do with its quality, just as this success didn't necessarily have anything to do with its quality. You know, but of course you are being held accountable. So I then kind of had to see where to get my next paycheck from because suddenly I am not this film maker anymore because Hollywood is always you are worth as much as your last project made at the box office basically. So I was worth this much after Last Exorcism and I was worth this much after 13 Sins which is a real problem to get yourself out of. So the answer is TV. you know, And I was always like I don't want to do TV, I don't want to do TV but A I had to get my rent check from somewhere, and B, I think the landscape really changed. Maybe I'm just telling myself that because now I'm doing TV, but I think a lot has happened since we last spoke in Mm -hmm. terms of TV with True Detective, with Game of Thrones, that some of the best storytelling today is being done in TV. So it's not actually as bleak a world as I would have thought back then that TV is. But what has been interesting about TV in in terms of being disillusioned or not is that it is a completely different medium because your role as a director is a completely different one. Like It shouldn't even be called the same. They should make up a new word, I think, for it. Because in a a movie, in a feature film, you create a world from scratch, right? You cast your people, you make every decision, the costumes, the locations, all of that from scratch. You work on the script, you put your team together. You are responsible for everything and not that every idea is yours, but you are the filter through which everyone else's ideas are filtered and you, as the director, are the one that goes yes, no, yes, yes, no. You know? In TV, you come on board with a script that the DGA says you need to have 24 hours before principal photography. So sometimes you get a script as you get on the plane. You read the script on the plane, it's very clear because the script is already such a political document because it's been in development with the network, with the production company, with the showrunner, with the mm -hmm, financiers, that this is already the compromised document that everyone agreed on. The last thing they want is your opinion about anything as a director. It's very clear direct what's on the page. So that's the first difference. Then the actors are already cast. All the sets are already built in the studio. They already are wearing what they have been wearing for the last couple of episodes. In a, in a feature film you are the one that knows most about the story and knows most about the world it's set in and that is where you get all your authority and strength from. So you don't have to pull the director card because you have substance, because you have sat with the story for so long. In TV it's the exact opposite. You know less about everything than anyone else who is there and who has worked on all the other episodes right? and everybody knows that, including the actors. and the showrunner, which I I wasn't even clear on the concept when I did my first episode, that there is a showrunner who has overseen the writing concept and is the authority on set and who is actually making the decisions. It's not you as the director because at first I was always like, shouldn't I make that decision? You know, we were in production meetings where in in a feature film environment you would get asked a thousand questions from all the department heads. And suddenly, I was in a production meeting for TV where I wasn't asked a single question. I was more like a de- uh, I was auditing the production meeting more than anything. And then there's another thing in TV which is called the tone meeting, which I also wasn't familiar with. I saw on the schedule tonight, tone meeting. So I showed up for the tone meeting. I was like, I wonder what the, should I prepare something? What is it? It's basically where the writers sit you down, and exp- go through the sk- script scene by scene and explain to you what is important about every scene and what they need you to deliver. And they will tell you about every actor's weaknesses and strengths and about, you know, be careful that that doesn't happen here. And you basically take notes and then you go on set and you try to deliver that. And at first it was a real kind of switch that you had to make in your creative ego because you were so used, I was so used to being the creative authority on set and at least have the last word, not with a budget obviously, if something's outside of the budget the producer will have the last word and very quickly tell you what you can and can't do. But within the creative process I was the one who got to make the decisions. With TV it's more like you are an advisor who can voice a suggestion but whether that is being done depends on if it falls on you know, fruitful ground or not with the showrunner, with the actors. And because the actors are very aware that you are not the authority, they have no problem saying like, no, I won't do that. And so you are in a position where you can't plan very much because you can only, in a movie, you can plan because you can count on the people that you cast making a concerted effort to execute what you're trying to do. In TV, there might be one or two people that just know their character better and they protect that character, which I completely understand because they're dealing with a different... Director every week, and if they completely did what every director wanted, the show wouldn't have any continuity and consistency. So they have to protect that. But that also means if I go in with a rigid plan, I will just hit a wall, and that'll be the end of it. You know. So after I I got through that first shock, where I was like, "What am I actually?" Because I want to be a good director. I've been hired. I want to do my job. I want to be worth the money they're paying me. What do I actually do? If I came to set, I did the blocking. That's the one thing you get to do as a TV director. You get to suggest where everyone should stand and where everyone should move. If I dropped dead after that, I don't think anyone would notice until the end of the day if someone else called action every now and then. It's amazing. But that was the disillusion. Is that a word? Delusion? Disillusion Dis- with with the process. Disillusionment, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Where you're like. This is not the creative process I went to film school for, and I kind of want to put a bullet in my head right now. But then I realized that it's the greatest film school you could ever go through because you have to deliver something within a world that has been created. And it's like this training exercise, because you have to understand what that world is, what the rules of that world are, what the tone of that world is. And you have almost no time to understand how every actor works. Because with a movie you have rehearsal time and you, you, know, you have much more time to warm up with people. Whereas in TV you have minutes before you are shooting your first take and then you have one or two takes and then you have to move on. In a movie you do like Fincher, 40 takes, you know, there's always something interesting. Here the actors have prepared their performance, which in a movie doesn't happen. I think in a movie the movie actor prides himself or herself. To come to set as a blank slate, you know, and then just try stuff. And you tr- put your heads together, and the joy is to experiment and find things together. In TV, you don't have that because you don't have the time. You're shooting a forty-five minute episode in six days. There is no time for experimentation. So they come with a with a performance that they have thought out in their hotel rooms, and they show it to you, and you get one tweak, maybe two. And if you want more than that, everything comes to a standstill and there's this atmosphere of something's wrong, you know, we're out of sync or something. And everyone gets insecure and the showrunner comes in and makes the decision. So I kind of quickly had to learn that it's a completely different rhythm, you know. And the problem is that by the time that you have earned your actor's trust, and I get that that's a very valid process for them to go through, the shoot is over. Like on every episode where I have six days, by day six, I have the feeling now we all trust each other, we know what we're capable of, and now we could go off and make a movie together or make an episode together or whatever. The problem is that we just made the episode, you know, while that wasn't necessarily <laughs> sort of the case. So it's a great it's a great environment to try your own mm-hmm. directing abilities, because you have to be fast and you get to try a lot of stuff. And if stuff goes wrong, you don't feel quite as connected to the final creative outcome as you would in a movie that you have been working on for two years. So it gives you a certain freedom. With a movie, if I drive to set in the morning, I'm nauseous because I'm so nervous because everything, if, if anything doesn't work out that day, then it's on me. you know. Whereas in, in TV, the machine is already running. Someone had this great analogy, actually the showrunner of the first show that I did, He said, in movies, you hold the steering wheel like this, tight. you know. And with a TV show, it's more this, where you kind of gingerly kind of, yeah, and that's exactly what it is. And it's like, to stay with the car analogy, it's like a, a movie is like a stick shift, I think, where if you don't press the gas, it'll just stand and nothing will happen. Whereas with an automatic, if you don't do anything, it kind of slowly drives anyway. And that is what the TV show is. I think a TV show could direct itself without a director, probably, and would more or less look the same, whereas a movie would just fall apart if there weren't a director. And that took a little bit to learn, but by now I'm having a lot of fun doing TV exactly because of these limitations. Because every, it's so fast you're in and out, you know. It's as if you are getting into this six day training camp with people you don't know, with a team you've never worked together with, with a cinematographer, you have no idea what his style is. You're, You have very little time to learn what he's been doing with the other seasons, the other episodes, and you have to work within that environment. And adjusting to that is, I think, a really good exercise. I think it's made me a much better director whenever I get to make my next feature film. I think TV will have been a good exercise and training camp.
0: Going back to something you said about how you came off the success of one film and then another film that you enjoyed making, you felt it wasn't as successful. In some sense though, don't you think that that then further prepares you and makes that you draw that line in the sand knowing that that's the ebb and flow of being an artist, that's an ebb and flow of having a brand, of being in a band, that you're going to have some that are perceived one way and some that aren't but if you really still want to do this you get back and you do it again and you know that that's kind of the risk?
1: That's a very mature way of looking at it. I don't know if I (laughs) had that maturity, you know, or you just, because you're just furious because it's out of your hand. Like we put as much time, it was the same team as the other movie. We put as much time and love into this movie as we did into the other movie. And then to see a company do nothing with it for whatever reasons, financial, it wasn't that they didn't love the movie or anything, but you're just helpless. It's this profound feeling of helplessness. And to go, like, if people could only see this movie, I think they would appreciate it, you know? And that, so I don't know if I had the distance to go, like, oh, that is just the ebb and flow of the creative process. That's beautifully put, because it gives it that poetry. But I didn't experience it as poetry in the moment, I think.
0: Right, well, and believe me, this is not, like, how I dictate my life every day either. I mean, we all get upset over something not working out. But I think if you have time to reflect on it, and say, because I've known a lot of people that have been frustrated, and say, "Nope, I'm done, I'm leaving, right. I'm tired of this. Right. It didn't work. This person did this, or that." But if you know that, if you can have some distance, somehow bring in a paycheck, however that is, and then go, "Okay, this might be part of how someone sustains a career."
1: Sure, you know, you're no, I'm sure. That down. that is probably true. That if you can't deal with the failures, you won't have a career, for sure, for sure. Now with me, I don't. It's one of those cases where I'm not really good at anything else. I don't know what else my career. If I could play the guitar, I would try the rock star career. I don't know. So I know that I'll stick with with narrative storytelling in whatever form, whether that's TV or movies or whatever. So that at least, when I panic and I'm frustrated, I don't go out of outside of that box and go like, let me become a gardener or something. I'm staying within the, you know, what can we do within that? And it's kind of the same. Thing though, you want to work with material that you find stimulating and interesting, and that's not generic. And then it's almost secondary where it ends up. I mean, of course, it's nicer if it ends up on the big screen at the arc light and you know on three thousand screens than on VOD on iTunes or something. But really, the the creative process that you go through is absolutely exactly the same. And,
0: and also too, sorry to interrupt you, um, that that knowing there isn't really anything else you have a desire to do. Because I heard someone say that the other day, like, oh, I'm not trained for something else, but I know that person's bright enough to do whatever they put their uh-huh, mind to. Uh-huh, but it's having that impetus to get you out of bed to do that. Right. And if it's the only thing that gets you out of bed is knowing that, okay, I have a 6 a.m. call time and I'll, I'll get ready for this.
1: Those are the days I I'd, I'd prefer to stay in bed, though, when I have a 6 a.m. call time. Okay, maybe bad analogy. Because you're always, I don't know, I'm always fatalistic, maybe that's a cultural <laughs> German thing, that I always think, like, today is the day when everything will go wrong and everything will fall apart. Mm-hmm. And every night after a shoot, I'm genuinely surprised. I'm going, today went really well. We got away with it one more day. Tomorrow is going to be a catastrophe, but today <laughs> will... And then when I think back, I don't think I've ever had a bad shooting day where I didn't go home and was like, today was amazing. And yet I always fall for that, that I'm terrified of the next day and of not being prepared for the next day. And I think like project after project, I get a little bit better at letting go and just go, it's this thing, you know, and, and going like whatever will happen. I don't have to be 100% prepared because I've been doing it long enough or I'm working with people that have been doing it long enough that we can react to Things that don't go completely according to plan, you know. But that's a very slow process to kind of for that to sink into my bones and for me not to be terrified in the mornings every morning.
0: That's good in some ways. I think there's an overconfidence in American culture. I think there, we've been groomed to be, oh, I got this. You know, we're, we're going to do this. Let's show them. You know. Yeah, I, I think wish he's... I had
1: that. I would pay good money for some of that confidence. It has its good sides and its bad sides. I think, like with my pessimism, usually I am overprepared, you know. So that's a good thing. But on the other hand, if I look back at at shoots now, we had such a good time, and I'm kind of like, I wish I had enjoyed that more and not had half my brain being terrified of what tomorrow might bring. Like if I had known the outcome in advance, I would have enjoyed the journey much more. So I'm now trying to consciously do that even with with difficulties because it's I'm so privileged how great to see these things, how great to see a genuine Hollywood diva being difficult and being a nightmare from the first row. You know, how great. <laughs> yeah. But of course, in that moment, you don't feel that way. You just go like that woman is destroying my life and I don't know how to do the scene because she's being difficult. But if I can just step back and go like, I get to spend my workday. Seeing that, first rate, you know, I wouldn't want to do anything else.
0: Right. Yeah. And you can pull out the ebb and flow card. Well, exactly. <laughs> I should this make is, an ebb yeah. and flow card or
1: a t-shirt. <laughs> right. mm.
0: Instead of have a nice day, it's yeah. an ebb and flow. Yeah. have another quote for you. Today is just a ton of quotes. This one is from Maxwell Maltz, and it reads, Often the difference between a successful man and a failure is not one's better abilities or ideas, but the courage that one has to bet on his ideas, to take calculated risk and to act. excuse me—and to act. So do you relate to that and I can read it again if you want, I kind of read it a bit too I, fast. I
1: think it helps if the idea is good to begin with, you know, um, confidence and we were talking about that earlier. I think confidence does help a lot, but if your idea is bad, then being persistent and, and loud about it is not going to get you that far either, like I like people a lot that are quieter and have great ideas and I have to, I know I have to pay good attention because they won't point out how great their ideas are. So I have to kind of listen because I know the diamonds are in there and they won't scream them into my face. But it's probably true that a lot of great ideas just die because someone doesn't have that feeling to project it to the world or the persistent. it's also hard because first couple of reactions might be negative that you get to something, you know, where you are pitching it to someone and maybe the pitch of how you describe the idea isn't completely worked out yet and you're just trying it out and then you get negative feedback. And I could imagine that that shuts a lot of people down. I think that's a very sensitive thing. Your audience for your unfinished ideas is something that people maybe are not as conscious about as they should be. That it's as if, you're carrying, as if you're giving someone a raw egg and you kind of want to know that they will be careful with that raw egg and not just destroy it because they don't get it or because they, they want their opinion in there quicker. There's also in test screenings, I think there are different groups of people, but one group of, of people is always, they won't tell you what they think about your movie, they will tell you what movie they would have made or wish you had made. And you always want to say, like, that's not the movie I made. you know. So I think if you, if you come with an idea to that crowd, then you will get discouraged very soon. But on the other hand, there is the danger of not going out with an unfinished idea to a test audience early enough and kind of keeping it, being very protective of it and working on it. and and not wanting to expose it to the world until you feel it's the best version of what it can be. And then when you show it to the world, they will react to it and you'll go like, oh damn, I wish I had heard that comment four weeks ago when it was still flexible and I could still do something with it. Now it's so rigid and the whole thing will fall apart if I integrate that idea that I just heard from someone, but back then it would have changed everything. So I think over the years I've gone out to people earlier and earlier and by now with the very first idea and see how they respond because it is, it can change so much and just to bounce people off of, uh, ideas off of people I think is a huge valuable tool and to know people well enough to know in, in what ways they're bouncing it back to you.
0: Do you have to put on the extrovert hat when you do that? Being an introvert or being more internal?
1: Not necessarily the extrovert hat, because I'm not a salesman. If the idea can't sell itself in that moment, then it's probably not a good idea. But you definitely need a thick skin. Like there's nothing. I never feel more humiliated and stabbed in the back than after a test screening. But that's what test screenings are for. You know, you don't make a test. You don't invite people to a test screening just for everyone to say like that was great. Have a good day. You know, you want them to say I was bored. I was offended. That didn't work, that didn't work, what the hell were you thinking about? And to hear that from 20 people, whether they're your best friends or strangers, doesn't matter. It's always a, an emotional catastrophe because I think a story puts out your view of the world out there. No matter what that story is, the way you handle performances, the way you, the, the editing rhythm, the color scheme, everything about it always revealed something about you as a person and how you see the world. So now you present that, and you are suddenly the raw egg. You, know? you are so you don't have any protection against that. And everyone is just bashing it you know, and making you feel like you are well, the dumbest person in the world. They don't intend to. They, are, they have the feeling they are very sensitive and careful. But of course, what you are hearing, you don't hear any of the positive stuff. You only hear, at least me, I only hear the negative stuff. So I'm never more depressed than the night after a test screening. Um, But it always is one of the most important steps, that test screening. The first one, a catastrophe, just get through it, it's like a traffic accident. And then test screening by test screening, it gets a little better, a little better, a little better. And I think the the goal at first, when I was test screening my first movie, I thought the goal was to make all negative comments go away. Like I know I have a great movie and I've tested it enough. If no one has anything negative to say about it anymore which is nonsense because you could do that until the end of time and it wouldn't ever happen. So by now it's like if everyone has a different complaint about the movie, then I know I have a good movie. It just has to be a different complaint from everyone. If that person hates the movie for that reason and that movie, that guy hates that actor in it and that guy hates the score and that guy, that's okay as long as it's not 25 people hating the same actor or the same score or the same whatever. You just want it kind of to spread the criticism and to dissolve itself. That there was a learning process to arrive there. That you'll never have a completely positive feedback to anything.
0: Well, going back to the quote that I uh, opened the question with, can you think of any calculated risk that you've taken? You know, since your time, you know, you you came out here, you went to AFI. Um, Any calculated risk, knowing that you you do think things, and I relate to that school of thought. It's not a criticism, believe me. I'm very much in that same camp. But when you overthink and you want to make sure that you plan things, can you think of any time where you, because I just heard a quote in a documentary that I saw, and the guy said, you know, directors are, they're reckless people. I thought, wow, that's interesting. Because reckless isn't necessarily a bad thing. It could actually be a good
1: thing. I just had a conversation with a director friend of mine where we were both saying a variation of that which was directors are arrogant people because <laughs> we assume that we have something to say to the world that is worth having millions pumped into it. We have a message for the world that will be so valuable to the world that someone should give us $5 million so that we can tell it. That's, that's delusional if you think about it. That is like a crazy, crazy mindset, and yet directors have that. I don't know where it's coming from, or why people accept it or what it is. But we both were in agreement that we're kind of off that way. Or that that the idea is kind of off. You have to believe in your own abilities or how special you are or your idea is or something to to a, a degree that is not normal, I think. And That's not the same as self-confidence because I don't think I'm a very self-confident person. definitely not an extrovert. I'm not a director personality necessarily in itself. But there's something where an idea drives you and doesn't let you sleep and just grabs you and wants to be heard somehow. And then you become the vehicle of that idea and maybe that is what gives you the the impetus to say like it's not just me thinking that I'm a genius and I can tell the story. It's like the story wants to be told, and it doesn't leave me alone, so I'll have to do that. That's more my experience of
0: it. Right. So keeping in the same vein, what if someone told Elon Musk, you know, these ideas that you're having about this car and and, and some of this, you know, it's, it's just, you pipe down, just, just, why don't you go work for a manufacturer?
1: Well, I don't think it would do any harm because <laughs> he has had successes. I think what's sure. dangerous mm-hmm. is when it's your first step into Unknown territory, and you know that it's unknown territory. It's something you've never done, and you're coming out of your shell and you're out of your comfort zone. And then that person, whoever that person is, comes up and says, "Why don't you do A, B, and C?" That is dangerous if then people listen to it, because there has to be failure in the beginning, right? And there has to be, and that's why film school is maybe one of the big assets. I think Stephen King said that in that book that he wrote about film making. That he said the one Advantage you can see in film schools is that you can call yourself a filmmaker, that no one can laugh at you and you have the space and room to fail. And I wish I had seen that in film school because I was so tense in film school, it all felt like as if you can win film school. You know, film school shouldn't be there to be won or for you to be the most talented in your class and to show the world and show Hollywood. It should really be, a, and, and I think they're doing a good job trying to protect that as much as possible. It should be a time where you are allowed to try stuff and fail and see what doesn't work. It's like that Edison quote where he said he find, found 900 methods to not invent a light bulb you know, before he found the one that, that actually worked. So it's the same there. Yeah, so I think that's the Elon Musk would probably be fine. I wouldn't be too worried about Elon Musk at this point.
0: I think you said before, Daniel don't worry about making it pretty. I think that's interesting, and is that part of what you talked about in film school that it, it made it okay to like fail in making something?
1: Don't worry about making it pretty. I mean, the process is messy. I think some someone uh, talked about the parallel to making the sausage. You know everyone, when you later talk about your movie is done and then you hear people talk about the process, it sounds so beautiful. It sounds like they were on vacation. They always we all of the same opinion it was just a creative melting of the minds and everyone was supportive of each other that's not what it's like you know it's it's a war there are people that you love and people that you hate and you have all the self doubt in the world and more often than not you you have the feeling you have no idea what you're doing it always feels like there was a plan and then they executed the plan and now there is the movie you know but it's this this quote that there are how does it go? Three movies, one that you write, one that you shoot, one that you edit. I think that's very true. Like My movies, I never expected to be the outcome better or worse than what they then became. But I think ideally there will be the, the product, the movie, the story itself will take, its own, own, take on its own life and will have its own life force and tell you what it wants to be. And I think that that's where a lot of people, wh- or where it's hard to listen to that because you're so tense and you are so unsure of yourself that you don't want to release that power and go, oh, let's just see what happens. You want to execute your plan, you know? And that's where you hit the wall because you won't be able to completely, 100% execute your plan. You need that little bit of flexibility to go like, oh, it wants to be funny in that moment, let it, you know? and then test screen it and see if it destroys everything else, which it might. But at least give, and that goes for everything, give the actors the room to give you something else than what you had in your head before, give the production designer, the cinematographer, give everyone enough room to, to breathe and to contribute, and I think they will catch on to that very quickly, whether you are someone who just wants to have stuff executed, their vision and you don't really want people to contribute, you know, you just want them to fill in the blueprint that you've made, or do you want them to contribute? And I think the the atmosphere on set is night and day. And I think we talked about that four years ago, that if you stick to your plan, then all of it, and if you're a genius, that's great, but if you're not, you have a problem because everything will only be filtered through your one mind and your one angle, you know, and there will be blind spots that you can't, can't do anything about whereas if you give everyone else the opportunity to to creatively contribute you know and work together suddenly it's 10 minds kind of putting their processing power together and that way you eliminate i think a lot of blind spots that otherwise you only see in test screenings and maybe when it's too late and you can't reshoot whereas if everyone was inspired to take ownership of the project which is why I don't really believe in this, a film by, and then the director's name. That's always kind of weird to me because if that is the case, then they worked in a very different way of what I work like or of, my, of what my movies come together as. Because there are so many people contributing, and the movie would feel different if you only exchanged one of these people. It would be a completely different movie.
0: For your movie, 13 Sins, you were hired by Jason Blum of uh, yes. Blumhouse. Yes. Okay, Um, Productions, Blumhouse Productions. So where did you meet him? I met him
1: in his office, you know, the last place (laughs) you'd ever think.
0: How did the two, let me me go back, okay, so how did the two of you um, come in contact with each other?
1: I got an email from my agent that said, Jason Blum would like to meet you, and then I went and met him. And he had uh, 10 different projects, because Jason Blum is producing, you know, juggling all these projects at the same time. And he was basically just pitching. First of all, he's this rock and roll personality. That is, have you ever met him?
0: I have not, no.
1: He's amazing. Like uh-huh. he is, he's kind of his boots on the table and he's nice. not the, the executive the way oh, you would great. imagine. Uh-huh. Um, very fun, and very high energy. And he pitched me all these um, projects and I didn't really connect to any of them. And he, he created an atmosphere that was loose enough and friendly and warm enough that I felt I could say that. I could say, I don't, I'm not interested in that story, blah, 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 blah. And when he was done with those 10, he kind of talked over my shoulder and was like, do you want to show him 13? And I turned around and realized that there was someone else sitting in the corner (laughs) that I hadn't seen before that, which was uh, Brian Kavanagh-Jones, who is the producer of Thirteen Cents And they gave me the original Thai movie 13 Game of Death to watch. And that was the end of the meeting. And then I watched 13 Game of Death. I, wasn't, I loved the movie, but I wasn't too excited about making a remake. No one ever wants to make a remake necessarily, you know? And if they're saying they do, they, they're lying. But I couldn't at the time. I was working with M. Night Shyamalan at the time on a, on a project and I, I knew I had to do something soon because there's this pressure in Hollywood that they will all forget about you if you don't make something within a year or something and your career will be over. At least that's what your agents tell you. So I knew I had to find a new project and I just couldn't find material that I was interested in. And 13 Sins or 13 Game of Death at the time was something that I always had in the back of my head. And I liked the material and the only thing that spoke against it was that it was a remake. And then I thought if we can make this different enough and make it our own and not just you know shoot it shot by shot, um, then it's going to be an interesting project. And so I said yes to that. If I could bring on board David Burke, who had written Last Exorcism or rewritten Last Exorcism for me and with whom I was writing with Emma Night Shyamalan at the time and who is a complete genius, who by now is writing Paul Thurhoven's new movie and Daniel Espinosa's new movie, Robert Rodriguez's new movie, and he has completely blown up. He should be sitting here telling you about his career, not me. Um, But they let me bring him on board and we wrote a new script. David wrote a new script, which was great. And what was fun about it is that the structure of 13 Sins kind of had this episodic structure because there are 13 challenges that the protagonist goes through. So you could create a completely new world for, for every one of these challenges where normally in a movie there are like one or two big set pieces and the rest is just kind of connective tissue. Here it was 13 set pieces, you know. So that was really enticing about the material. And then Jason Blum loved it and then Bob Weinstein loved it and bought it and then we went to New Orleans to make the movie. That's See, and this story now feels very clean and as if it was just this pleasant road from A to B when of course, you know, it was a one-year process of sweat and tears and blood, not between us but just in the movie-making process. And the movie turned out completely differently from what anyone else thought, I think better. you know. But, but that's what I'm talking about when, when people talk about their movies, that it always feels like it was such a smooth journey. It never was a smooth journey. It was always an adventure and fascinating and I would do it again in a heartbeat. But it was never smooth.
0: I think. Hmm. you think that's why some people don't come back because they thought it was going to be one thing, whatever the movie is, and it, it ends up being not Hearts of Darkness type triumphs that people are going through. You know, Apocalypse Now, where you're, you know, dealing with all sorts of things from opposition from the government, things like that. But you know, something where it just wasn't what you thought. You know, you're, you're ruminating late at night, thinking like, no, this can't happen, and. You thought it was going to be where you heard birds chirping and. Right.
1: I, I have a friend who is a very talented director who just made her first movie and who said, That's it. A beautiful movie. The outcome is gorgeous. Name actors, great. And she said, I have no desire to ever do that again. Yeah. She just was She said she could not deal with the feeling of being the king on a throne making the decisions. That to her, what most other directors are craving, what you can get addicted to, you know, that is exactly what turned her off. She was like, I don't wanna have that relationship with anyone ever. Like to her, as much as she was trying to build a collaborative atmosphere on set, I think it could never be collaborative enough. She always had the feeling she was the leader of something and she didn't wanna be the leader. She wanted to be, she's amazing but that's fascinating. Yeah. And I I'd, th- I'd never heard that from anyone that there was that they had too much power on set and that's why they wouldn't do another movie. But she is that person that makes complete sense and she might not ever make another movie. I think maybe if she gets over the experience and most people have to forget the bad experiences to make a movie again, she kind of has to forget the powerful experience of it all to do it again. I don't know. So I'm I'm sure that a lot of people don't make a second movie because they are surprised by how much hostility from the elements, from from everything, they are bombarded with and they have to get through.
0: Right. I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but I'll just say it. So there's this book called uh, Quiet, The Power of Extroverts. Susan Cain? Introverts. Introverts, I'm sorry. I just bought that. <laughs> I sorry. just bought you that. You did? Oh. Because
1: I am an introvert, my wife is an introvert, and we're having a daughter in a month, and I'm like, that girl is going to be the introvert of introverts. I better get that book and It's excellent. Read it. Is it? Yeah.
0: It's excellent. And she does these case studies of, of going into Harvard Business School. She goes into another uh, religious college, a uh, Tony Robbins seminar. And just how much in in this culture we're... we're push to be these gregarious larger than life personalities. So I was just relating that back to your friend wondering if maybe she felt the pressure to be that and that's very draining if you're an extrovert right. or if you're an introvert, right. excuse me. Right. You, you you don't always want to be on level 10, but I think people really resonate especially in LA to that and probably other other metropolitan cities.
1: Resonate to that meaning that they are turning towards the extrovert.
0: Yeah, they they respond to it right. whereas if you're too in the background Oh, they is everything okay? Are you okay? I think that is completely,
1: completely the case because I have that in meetings. That I think creativity and storytelling, in itself, is a timid process because you are trying stuff out constantly. You're throwing stuff against the wall, seeing if it sticks. You're not sure of it. You have to see it. It's kind of a you know, but in a in a meeting with producers. I think we talked about that also four years ago. You have to pretend as if you have it all figured out. There is no doubt in your mind. You see the movie clearly all bullshit. Like, I don't know, a single creative person who has a vision. I think Hitchcock claimed that, that he basically had shot the movie in his mind. And maybe, I don't know. I know that that's not the case with me or anyone that I know. But for some reason, there's this convention that everyone has to pretend in those first meetings that you have it all figured out, otherwise you won't get hired. Which I understand from the producer and executive side because of course you'd rather hire someone who has the confidence and can take over and you don't have to babysit that person anymore. Like if I put on to display all my insecurities that I have about myself, the creative process, the project, the idea, all that kind of stuff in that meeting, you know, I would be a mess. And the producer would see that and go like, I don't want to deal with that stuff. I'm hiring someone to shield me from all that stuff. You know? So I think that is a personality thing, like a lot of friends of mine that I went to film school with that I think are the better directors don't work because they can't make it through that first meeting because they can't fake the confidence. You know, and it's a short meeting, it's like an hour long, you have to pretend, there should almost be an acting class for directors to just act confidently for an hour, just get through it somehow and pretend. You know what you're talking about because you don't. You, at the beginning of the creative process, it's as if you are meeting someone and you're talking about the plan to write a song. You know that doesn't exist yet. There is no clear vision of it. You can talk about ideas. You can brainstorm. You can talk about what you don't want to do, what you want to avoid, what you like. You like the last Fincher movie. You like the darkness. Right, there are references, but to pretend that you have the product already made in your mind, I think it's Kind of insanity.
0: I mean, do you think for, for you, a lot of the people maybe that you know that were in film school or people that have talked to you after screenings aren't making films because they're not always shooting? I know you've said that in the past always be shooting. And I don't know if that meant just on set, uh, always have, you know, be ready to roll, or, or just even during these downtimes, they weren't making something. They weren't doing something in terms no, of. No, I
1: think that goes to what you were saying earlier about the. Um that, that people get scared easily if the feedback isn't positive immediately. So everyone is always waiting for someone to give them to allow them to believe in an idea and to give them a green light and go like, go. But no one will, you know? So if you don't just go, and I think that's what I meant by always be shooting, don't wait for someone else to give you the green light or the money or the support because it, 99% won't be there and the people that are not shooting are the people that have been developing the same script for 10 years and they are waiting for financing for 20 million, for someone to give them $20 million, that's not going to happen, you know. I think. The people that are shooting are the people that grabbed a video camera and said, I'm going to do this quirky little thing now and see how it turns out and then they show it to someone who sees something in it and then you go from there but you need to be… Doing it, rather than waiting and and hoping that someone will allow you to do it. I think, and we have all the tools today, right? There's no Mm -hmm. excuse anymore to to wait because we just don't need the same resources that we needed 20 years ago or something. Everyone can shoot a movie on their iPhone, like Tangerine or movies. Yeah.
0: But what about short films? Do you feel like after maybe one or two because you talked about being in film school and it's it was a safe place to kind of fail but then people that get caught in this perpetual short addiction is that good
1: no no no. i think that is a problem because it's <laughs> just <laughs> about how people look at stuff if you have that might have been the case years ago that someone would look at a short film and go like this is brilliant will now make the feature version of it But you can count, and those examples exist, but you can count that on one hand. I think what you have to do today is you have to make a feature as time-consuming and as, you know, grueling as that is. You have to get that feature into a festival and you have to get people to see it and, if possible, win an award. And that's the moment that people will start paying attention and will give you your next project because they, you have to try to put yourself into their mindset, they have to justify why they hired you to their bosses, right? So if you've made a short film and you're, you next want to do a feature, you need someone who is brave and courageous enough to close that gap for you and say, I can justify to my boss that on the basis of this short film, I gave you millions to do this feature. And I don't think there are enough brave people out there. Whereas if you have made a feature that has won an award, It's much easier for this guy to go like, well, she has already made a feature that won an award, so I didn't take any risk offering her this new movie. So this person, if that movie doesn't do well, doesn't get fired. I think it's all, I think we talked about that too last time, it's all fear-based. People don't want to be seen taking risks because if that goes badly, they lose their job. So I think you have to give them as much... Of a reason to trust you with something that they can defend when talking to their bosses as possible. And that means make a feature. I would, after film school, urge everyone to not waste time making short films.
0: When you sit down to write a screenplay, are you focused on character, plot, certain set pieces, or is that the furthest thing from your mind?
1: I haven't since film school. I've never written anything by myself because it's so daunting. And you're so lonely and it's so scary that I've never gone back to that place. It's always been writing with someone and most of the time based on material where there is already a first draft or there is a synopsis or there's something there that I have in front of me rather than going to that scary place of there is nothing and it has to come out of nowhere. And I've been happy, lucky enough to, to work with talented people that can deal with that condition better than I can and i think that's one of the reasons why i went into directing over writing because i couldn't really deal with the anxiety of the blank blank page and knowing that if i take the wrong turn you know in act 1 then 3 months later i'll wake up in act 3 and go like oh damn i just wasted 2 months of my life because i you know took the wrong turn or whatever with directing it's much easier because you you see what you have in front of you and you can criticize that all you want and put the structure in there and all But the initial process of inception I haven't been a part of in a long time. And I miss that a little bit, because that is the real creativity that the writer comes up with. But that's the price you pay, I guess, for not being a great writer, and I'm not a great writer.
0: Do you think that's a fear of being alone? That's interesting.
1: Yes. Because it's just if you are alone, or at least in my experience, you're alone with your inner critic. you know. And in film school we learned a lot of narrative structure and all that kind of stuff. So I apply that, I can't help it, as soon as I come up with an idea, I throw all that technique on it and there's nothing that doesn't die under that blanket immediately. You know? And this inner critic, I've, I've heard different people talk about how they deal with it, that they have a notepad and everything the inner critic says goes on the notepad oh wow and then in the drawer and we will deal with that later but now let us give the creative process the freedom to not be suffocated by the inner critic which i've never actually tried i should try that because it sounds it sounds, it good. sounds great yeah but if you have someone else that you can bounce ideas around with i think it's so much faster because i don't have to have an idea in my head and wait until i know how i feel about that idea i just say it i don't have to be afraid that it's a stupid idea if i found a good collaborator And that person will have an immediate reaction to it, either good or bad. If it's bad, then we go another direction. If it's good, then I don't have to second guess myself and go like, Oh, I hope that was a good idea. But I know that my 100% of my test audience right now, that one person loved the idea. So we're good to go into that direction. Of course, there are a million ideas and you throw out 99% of them. But the the, the second person, your co-writer gives you such a safety net that I don't want to do without ever again. I think I sleep better with that safety net.
0: Have you tried to ever write? I mean, I know you wrote in college. I think you were an editor for uh, school newspaper, or are you, you you wanted to do short stories or science fiction things like that. I yeah. Find.
1: So. Ne- but narrative, long form. Since I yeah. studied at AFI directing, I've never done from scratch again. Maybe it's time. Fifteen years later, maybe yeah. that trauma is. Not inside of me anymore. I don't know. Um,
0: you can fight with the critic on paper. That's right. You know, lock him away. Yeah, exactly. Never look at him. Put again. him in a drawer. Yeah.
1: I, I know that I use the, that critic on a daily basis when dealing with other people's material, and they must hate me for it because I, like, if you give me five pages of a script, I'll give you thirty pages of notes on those five pages because my inner critic just goes wild. Yeah, and that can be a, a blessing and a curse. I think it's on the one hand, it's good because it's all narrative structure based, but on the other hand, of course, it stifles the creative, the joy of the creative project, a uh, process a little bit,
0: yeah. Well, there's a saying that people don't actually want feedback, they just want reinforcement that their idea is good.
1: Then I'm the wrong person to show your screenplay to.
0: Hmm. Well, huh. but yeah, but then the people that, you think about the people that have been in your test screenings yeah. and the five of them have come up with the same. Issue, quote unquote, that they have with your film, isn't that almost a blessing? in totally, some sense? Of it Not maybe not in that moment.
1: <laughs> no, it hurts, but of yes. course it's, uh-huh. a, it's an absolute blessing. There is, I think, it's an art to give feedback that at the same time criticizes and boosts your confidence.
0: Very much so. And yeah. that's
1: interestingly, I I've learned that LA people are actually pretty good at that, whereas people outside of LA, like if I show something to my German friends, that's when I notice the difference between if I have a test screening among filmmaker friends in LA that know how to gently put something, but at the same time go like, but you're onto something great here. And if you keep going to that direction, it's going to be mind blowing. Whereas the German crowd just go like, hated it, end of story, and you're like left hanging and kind of destroyed. I think that's a that's, that's an art that not many people know how to do right.
0: But, yeah, I think too intention. I think some people give criticism to wound.
1: But those people, you the good thing is yeah. about having made several projects that you leave out those people for the next test screen. <laughs> so, someone said don't ever, don't take advice about your writing from someone that doesn't love your writing. And I think it's the same with, with filmmaking. Like if someone hates the film you want to make, then that person is not the one to help you get to where you want to go, obviously. But I think after a couple of times you have that, that down. Or it goes the other way that you know… Like I had this one girl in film school at AFI without saying her name. But we were so different in what we liked and what we were trying to do and she hated everything I did so much, and I hated everything she did so much that she became this really valuable test viewing member because I knew when she hated something, I was on the right track. And when I screened my thesis film, Rough Cut, she was the first one who raised her hand. Oh, great. I was like, I love this. Uh oh. And I was like, oh, we better go back into the editing room and re-edit this thing. <laughs> and we did. So she became valuable just by knowing what she, what her sensitivities what her were. So it could go either way, I think. But yeah, the people that wa- want to hurt you, you should probably get rid of as quickly as possible in your, in your test screenings. But you also shouldn't get rid of the people that tell you the truth. And I think that's sure. kind of the, the danger.
0: So if you're not necessarily experiencing the blank page, but you're collaborating with someone else's work who's already done that part, what's your process for then breaking down that script, looking at it, analyzing it?
1: Well, I'm the slowest reader in the world. Like It will take me six hours to read a script. I don't know why that is. I kind of read it out loud in my head or something. But what happens because of that is that I am stuck in every single moment in that script for a really long time, so I notice really quickly when something takes too long, whereas a quicker reader would probably just go like, oh, here's a, here's a page of whatever, and I'll just continue reading on. I get angry if I'm on a page that doesn't know what it wants, and I don't know why I'm in that scene right now, and I, I hold the writer, this sounds very bad, but I kind of hold the writer personally responsible with wasting my time which really isn't their fault because I'm just a slow reader. But at least after reading it, I have a very clear, and it might be completely off objectively, but I have a very clear idea where I felt the script worked or didn't work. And then I just apply, I'm a big big believer in formula is always a word, in, in classic narrative structure, like from Aristotle over, I think Robert McKee is a genius. I know a lot of people think he's too formulaic and he's whatever. But I think that most of the weaknesses in a narrative, when it can't hold your your attention, that is because it doesn't adhere to a certain narrative structure, if it be three act structure, a five act structure, whatever it is, that is ingrained in us as human beings. You know, so I work a lot with question marks, for example, like at what at what moment at this moment in the script. What are the question marks that I, as an audience, am burning to have answered that make me turn the page? Why am I interested in continuing this? And a lot of time, you'll realize there is no question mark, that people are just having coffee right now, and you know it's a problem, and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is conflict and stakes, because drama is conflict and stakes. That also means that you don't know what the outcome of something will be. So, there is a kind of internal magnetism and a structure from moment to moment that I think you have a. It's very easy to get a good feeling for that and to not be distracted by. Th- that's maybe another thing. I'm not a very visual person, as in, I don't see the script in my head, you know, at all. I, I, I feel the story, I read the story, I f- get a feeling for the characters, I don't see images and i think a lot of other people that do see the images are kind of seduced by that and don't necessarily see that the story is weak you know that the that the cornerstones of the story are not as powerful as they should be but because i don't have that visual at all to distract me i'm always after the moments that don't live up to their full potential in what they are trying to do and that's a very abstract thing that it doesn't matter if that happens on a boat or in space or on a whatever it's you know it's always the why should the audience be at the edge on the edge of their seat right now what are they wondering about what do they want to find out why do they care what do they identify with those things you know so it's almost a mathematical structure which helps me a lot because it is basically more or less the start the same starting point for almost every script which of course a lot of writers hate because they go like, but my script is different from that script. It is different in subject matter and in content, but in the underlying audience expectation and the rhythm that an audience has in consuming a story, it's not different, it's, it's, meet, it's met with the same expectations. So you have to see it through that lens to know how an audience is gonna react to it. I
0: what is that preferred rhythm, from what you've seen? Is it pulses of conflict, not too soon, but don't have too much conflict for too long. Give them a break for a second.
1: I mean, I don't know if there's that standard standard uh, uh, thing, but I think you need the first act has to deliver the dramatic question. You know, ideally there is a protagonist who has a very clear objective. Ideally there are stakes, so there are consequences if that protagonist doesn't succeed. And the higher those stakes, the more dramatic the story. Ideally there is a scene and there's a whole book, uh, Save the Cat, that is kind of based on that. Ideally, you have given the audience a reason to side with that protagonist, which a lot of movies and scripts leave out completely, which is amazing to me because it's one of the main ingredients. Why would I as an audience care? If that character sees his father before he dies you know there must be something that shows me a humanity inside of that character it can be a bad bad mafia serial killer whatever guy but something that I can relate to where we share uh, our humanity in that moment so that he becomes the vehicle for me to discover things about myself in the end I think that's the secret that every audience it's a very I, that's a very selfish process. I think every audience really comes to the theater to learn something about themselves and not about Oklahoma or space or whatever, but about their emotions in that moment. But that only works if you can create a connection between the protagonist and the audience earlier. So that would probably be the formula I'm looking for, is there a connection? Is there a clear want which leads to the dramatic question, which is will this protagonist successfully save the love of his life, whatever, whatever. And then you go into the second act where there are, where you have to look at the conflicts. Is there enough? Is, he, is what he, the steps he is doing, are they escalating in a way that at the same time is believable but also doesn't need too much patience? Because in real life he would probably first phone his grandmother and then he would go do, 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 and we don't want to sit through all that. We want the condensed version, we want the fake version, but we want it to feel emotionally Real, which is a hard thing to achieve, but it, it's something that you can very clearly track throughout a second act. I think, and the first half of the second act you know, normally, traditionally, is is called like the fun and games part, which is where most the se- of the scenes that you see in a trailer are in the first half of the second act, where the promise of the movie, the reason why people came, is to see those scenes. You know. It's like oh there's a a man that talks to his snake Mel, Mel Gibson with his beaver in Jodie Foster's movie you know that would be the first half of the second act where we kind of have a little bit of time the clock isn't ticking quite as fast yet and then most of the time the mid point halfway through the story is a more fundamental twist to the whole story it turns out the beaver is real or has whatever, whatever, you know, can actually talk. of Something that changes our whole look at, on the story and the direction of the story, which I think is super important because otherwise a second act gets very long. Like if it's only a one directional thing, which exists of course and is, exists successfully, but it's very hard to execute, to keep the audience's attention without something that in the middle kind of breaks the movie. Up and gives it a whole different direction. And a lot of time, like in a, in a spy movie, it would be our protagonist finds out that the agency he's working for is actually the the bad guys. Blah blah blah. blah. So suddenly it's a, or in Mad Max, it's when they they've been driving into that one direction and now they've achieved whatever they need to achieve, and now they're literally turning around, coming back. That would be kind of the midpoint. Then the stakes have to be raised in the second half. Um, of the second act and lead to the major confrontation. Then if you go by the hero's journey, which I believe in a lot, Joseph Campbell and all that kind of stuff, there is the major confrontation. It looks like the hero is going to die. He metaphorically dies, sheds his old ego, learns something about himself that he didn't know before that is most of the time painful. And that enables him because he doesn't break in that moment. He almost breaks, you get him to the breaking point and you can see that in almost every movie that that is being done. Because we need to really break a character to see what he's made of, right? If you never challenge a character you don't know what he really has inside of him. So you almost break him and in that process of staring death in the face metaphorically or obviously in a romantic comedy it would be the girl is dating another guy. You know, It doesn't have to be death, literally, but it's the death of that. So now our protagonist learns something about himself that was in his blind spot that he didn't know before, which now enables him to, be, to use that as a tool to change. That's why character arcs and development are so important. Become a different person, and that enables him to achieve the goal that he hadn't been able to achieve before. Now we're in the third act, where most of the time he has to defend, where he's where he is challenged by the antagonistic force that he's been battling throughout the second act one last time, and that's where the big dragon or Sauron or whatever you know, rears his head for the first time, attacks him, and he has to prove that the change that he just went through is a permanent one that can be challenged, and he will, will still survive with his old ego, end of story. So that would be at least the, that is the mythology, the, the thousands of years old you know, paradigm that stories are building. You can go away from that paradigm as much as you want, but I think it helps to know that that is what audiences intuitively are expecting and someone who does that really great is Tarantino. Like, I don't think there's anyone who knows this story structure better and messes with it and messes with your expectation, which is great, but it's different from not knowing it and just writing something into the blue and then wondering why people don't identify with the characters or aren't hooked to certain developments or something like that. So that would be my, my formula structure that I kind of… If I'm, if I'm reading it and I'm engrossed, then it doesn't matter you know, if it's a three-act structure or whatever. But if I feel like my attention kind of drifts and I don't really care, most of the time the answer is in that structure that somehow doesn't deliver what it needs to deliver.
0: Favorite closing line of a movie? What is it? Could be several different movies.
1: Damn, that's a good question. Favorite closing line of a movie? Um, maybe Fight Club. You met me at a strange time in my life. I always loved because it it's so dry. Um, I don't know if I remember a lot of closing lines of the movie, but they. one interesting thing about it, uh, is that in screenwriting class? They taught us that you can look in good scripts. You can look, look at the very first line in a script and the very last line in a script. And if it's written well, then you can see the character change in those two lines, or the, the, the whatever the movie was communicating to you is supposed to be like one view of the world is the first line and the changed view of the world is the last line i haven't examined a lot of scripts if that is actually the case but i love the idea that ideally the protagonist talks differently says something different and most of the time probably the opposite of what he said in the beginning in the end if that character change that we talked about you know that that death and rebirth thing is fully delivered that that might be the case is that the case for you met me at a strange in my life I don't know what the first line of Fight club is. I would have to look that up. I don't know but that's the theory I think.
0: So looking at some of your films, was there an ending line where you said no, no've got it's got to be delivered in a different tone there has to be a different look in the eye. it's not what I envisioned.
1: every single one because I think because there comes the point where the movie takes over and tells you what it wants to be it's such a cliche line but it's so true that that thing on the screen suddenly is something different from what you imagine that in my experience the ending that i initially shot never works i might as well for the next project just not shoot an ending cut the film together and then see what ending it wants to have but with 13 sins at least i learned that that i at least shot two endings knowing that and then i was like let's see which ending presents itself and wants to be itself more. And that was interesting because I usually am always for the darker ending you know the dark the darker the better because it has that air of it's more intelligent or something which is nonsense. Why is it more intelligent if your protagonist dies in the end than when he doesn't? But I always feel like I've delivered Shakespeare if there's death in the end rather than a happy Hollywood ending. But in 13 Sins we shot two endings one dark one where the protagonist does die and one lighter one where he doesn't. And for the first time when I played them both, I had the feeling I want the lighter one because I have seen this character go through all these trials and tribulations for 90 minutes, for two hours. He doesn't deserve to die. Like he deserves, he means too much to me to sacrifice him at the end of the movie, you know? And then we test screened both movies and got the same feedback that people said, it's so dark, please at least give us an ending that is not even darker than that. Yeah. So it's, it's not just the ending line because you said the look in his face mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. Another thing that's important is the end music. It took us forever for the light, more lighthearted version for 13 Sins, which is still pretty dark, to find the right end track because that is how you release the audience back into the world with that feeling, right? It's a combination of the last line, of the last look, of the last image. Is it the crane shot that goes back or is it you know is nature restored or what or do you go in or is it open-ended or whatever? And then unfortunately, I wish you didn't have to, but you kind of have to show your hand a little bit by choosing the end track that you're choosing. Because it does give away what you want the audience to feel. We talked about that earlier, the you know, how how vulnerable you are as a filmmaker if the audience knows what you're trying to make them feel and which emotion you're trying to manipulate them into. Nothing says that more overtly than you're closing music over the credits. You know. So it took us forever to try different different music stuff and it was a different movie every single time. And then in the end we found one that was just in between where you where it was not clear what the movie wanted you to feel, hopefully, which might be uncomfortable for a lot of audiences, like the one you talked about where someone wants a happy end and a happy kind of closed off end. They would probably hate that ending to begin with and then with that music because it leaves it emotionally a little bit ambiguous. But I kind of love that for that ending.
0: What about with the Bourne series? Because the music the, from the first one I can remember doesn't necessarily make me feel like it's a total happy ending, but there's a promise in the music, but it doesn't mean that everything's rosy. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say. I don't uh-huh, know. Uh-huh. You think of the, the, the I, s- I don't remember those okay. specific
1: scores, but I think that's exactly what you'd want it to be if it's not a closed ending. Because everything is rosy is is not a very inter- it's not a very challenging no. ending. And if you're trying to make a movie where where people will gather in groups outside of the theater to discuss and the louder they are screaming at each other, the better because you have the feeling you've you've, you've brought up emotions but let your own opinion about it be as much in the background as possible and let it be ambiguous. That to me feels very grown-up because you're giving the audience, you're releasing them ideally with a question and not with an answer. That is the ambition at least, whether that works or not. I don't know. But I think great, great movies do that, like Fight Club does it, a lot of Fincher's movies do that. Last Frontier, for sure does that on a great scheme where it's about like questions about humanity that you're being… Um, so I don't know how the Bourne series handles that but I could imagine that the character is complex enough that you can't force them into a clean cut, this is a positive ending kind of thing. So that makes a lot of sense to me.
0: Aside from your screening in Kosovo, which we know you, you did not probably stand outside and listen to some of the, the groups because there were other issues going on, but from other maybe more tame uh, screenings, have you sort of lingered outside just to hear even the intensity of the discussion? Not even the words being said, but the, 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 the passion in someone's voice when they were debating with a friend over something.
1: Not in my own with my own movie so much because I'm mostly in the Q and A, and that discussion happens right there in the audience, which I love. That sometimes happens that one person asks a question, and then someone in the audience, just when I'm about to answer, answers that question, but in, with an attitude. And then that person, there is something <laughs> happening. You know, and the more of that happens, the better. You know, the more involved people feel doesn't mean they love the movie necessarily. Some people might hate the movie but have a very strong opinion about something, and then that triggered blah blah blah. Something. But I've seen it with other movies, uh, Wings of Desire. When I first watched Wings of Desire, there was the afterno- Winders, I don't know how to say um, There was the afternoon show, and I arrived for the evening show, and there were all these people, these little groups standing in front of the theater, debating as if it was like a college course or something. And I was like, wow, I'm, I wonder what m- movie I'm getting myself into here, you know? Oh, Breaking the Waves is, I think, the same. Thing where people Breaking the Waves to me is one of those movies that I can't. I watch it every single time it's screened somewhere because every time I'm hoping that this time she's going to make it. This time she's going to survive. I know it's a movie. It's probably going to end the same way it ended last time. But that character has me so much that for some reason she's become real to me, and I'm you know following her wherever she's screening within a hundred miles. Breaking the waves, and after that movie I can never talk, but a lot of people can and there are the most because people either hate her or love her or, but everyone has a relationship with the protagonist, you know. And that is definitely one of the movies that leads to discussions outside of the movie theater. I love that.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting feeling when you really when you're just speechless and you can't even make small talk.
1: Yeah.
0: After a film. Yeah. I've been there many times right. and you have to maybe use the bathroom or you have to go get a drink of water or something oh, and you have to face
1: human beings. With me that might take days. It's oh, wow. just like I want to go home as quickly as possible. And that's not just when something is tragic. I felt like that after The Revenant or something, like it's just being overwhelmed by either the filmmaking quality or the protagonist's fate in the story or something, you know? It's like it has to be a pretty bad movie for me to want to discuss it with someone right afterwards, you know? Or not a bad movie, <laughs> but at least someone that does not have its hooks in me. Mm-hmm so much that I will think about it in a week or two to come.
0: Do you think that's an introvert-extrovert issue? Oh, maybe. Because I wonder if because introverts are so internal, and that's not to say extroverts don't feel things and in are internal at times, but extroverts need to vocalize right. so much, whereas introverts really just, they have they just let it ruminate, and we kind of have to work it out in our own heads, I think, sometimes before sense.
1: we... Isn't there this thing that, that it, Extroverts get energy from contact with other people and mm-hmm. introverts, it sucks energy out of them.
0: Right, and they gain energy from being internal and yeah. being by themselves. So that would
1: make sense to me that if I'm already so exhausted emotionally by the movie, I have no more energy to give, so I can't interact with people that, which would then need, m- require more energy because I don't have that energy, I just need to go home and regain yeah. that energy or something. I don't know, it's interesting.
0: Have you ever had trouble even driving? Sometimes it's just like, I think I need to pull on a side street and just sit here for a second after certain films. Not that
1: I can remember. No,
0: okay. But that would make sense. (laughs)
1: Don't don't drive emotionally impacted after this movie. There you
0: go.